Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to MoForecast, a podcast series where experts from Morrison and Forrester make predictions about enforcement and policy trends in the Biden administration. Today is part two of our discussion regarding antitrust. I'm your host, James Kukios, co-head of MoFo Securities Litigation, Enforcement, and White Collar Practice Group, and I'm pleased to be speaking today with Alex Akuliar and David Shaw. Alex is a co-chair of MoFo's Global Antitrust Law Practice Group, and prior to joining MoFo, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the DOJ Antitrust Division and also served as an advisor to a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission. David is a partner in Morrison & Forrester's Global Antitrust Law Practice Group. He draws upon his extensive experience across merger clearance litigation, cartel representations, counseling, and state attorney general antitrust enforcement to guide clients through government-facing antitrust matters. Prior to joining MoFo, David was the deputy chief of staff and counsel to the assistant attorney general in the antitrust division of DOJ. Thanks very much for joining me today, Alex and David. Our very first Mo Forecast podcast series episode was way back in December with Lisa Phelan and Megan Gerking, two other veterans of DOJ's antitrust division, talking about antitrust landscape under the Trump administration and making predictions for the Biden administration. That was, of course, before the administration turned over. But now we do have some data points here. Now that we're several months into the Biden administration, and you two also bring a different perspective, having come most recently from the Trump administration's DOJ. So why don't you just, if you could, give us a sense of what have you seen in the first several months of the Biden administration and where are we going? Thanks, James. This is Alex. The Biden administration has been unusually slow to appoint permanent leadership at the DOJ Antitrust Division and at the Federal Trade Commission. The first major appointment actually occurred just last week when the White House appointed Lena Kahn as the chairwoman of the FTC immediately after she was confirmed by the Senate as a commissioner. We now anticipate she will quickly choose permanent leadership to support her, including for the Bureau of Competition. The White House also has not yet nominated an assistant attorney general for antitrust at the DOJ. In addition, at the DOJ, the administration has not yet appointed any deputy assistant attorneys general to lead civil enforcement which includes mergers and civil conduct investigations. Deputy appointments do not require Senate confirmation, so they're often put in place quickly to ensure political oversight. It appears much of the decision-making today is being handled by a mix of career staff and some political appointees further up within the DOJ. The pace of appointments by this administration has led to several issues confronting parties before both agencies. So, for example, we've seen a vacuum of leadership on important policy matters, This includes the digital platform investigations and tech monopolization cases brought under the Trump administration. We, of course, anticipate that this will change quickly at the FTC now that Chairwoman Khan is in place. At the DOJ, career or acting leadership are still running most matters, which typically means that important decisions to start or stop cases are likely being delayed wherever possible. Although it is becoming clearer as the months progress and the agency initiates major merger challenges, the political leadership above the antitrust division is weighing in on some key decisions. Normally, career acting personnel feel less latitude to make decisions before the arrival of new political leadership that might encumber agency resources in a way that an incoming political appointee might disagree with or that could have significant policy implications. Another issue that has impacted parties before the FTC 
over the last few months is the even 2-2 split on the commission between Democrats and Republicans. This, of course, has ended now that Lena Khan has been confirmed, but the Democrats' majority may not last very long. The FTC needs a majority vote to take certain actions, like filing a lawsuit to block a merger. So some recent close calls have ended in a deadlocked commission and led to disputes that have spilled into public view. An example is the 7-Eleven Speedway merger, in which the parties went ahead and closed their deal after their timing agreement with the FTC had expired, despite the fact that the matter had not yet been resolved at the commission level. The commission did not have the votes to take action and lost an opportunity to reach a settlement that the parties had largely agreed to. The Republican and Democratic commissioners issued competing statements, with the Republicans in particular expressing frustration with their Democratic colleagues. This dynamic on the commission has now shifted with Lena Khan's addition, giving the Democrats 3-2 control, although it may revert back to 2-2 later this year, as Democratic Commissioner Rohit Chopra is awaiting Senate confirmation to head the CFPB. And finally, one last issue that has come up during this transition is that acting leadership of the antitrust division has criticized some of the policy decisions of the prior administration with respect to treatment of intellectual property, but it has not yet replaced those policies with new ones. This is a break from tradition in which career lawyers would normally decline to comment on controversial policy issues and wait for incoming political leaders for direction. At this point, it is unclear if the policy criticism comes from politically appointed DOJ leaders above the antitrust division or it represents the staff's views. Either way, without any concrete new direction on IP antitrust policy, many parties have been left wondering what agency guidance they can rely on safely. No matter who is installed at the DOJ, Lena Khan's selection to the chair at the FTC is a strong signal that enforcement policy under this administration will be heavily influenced by populist ideas and will be characterized by aggressive enforcement involving new theories of harm and attempts to use rulemaking authority. As a starting point, Ms. Khan made her name in law school with a 2017 article claiming that U.S. antitrust has, in many respects, failed. She has since also advocated for enhanced rulemaking by the FTC to address competition issues because, in her view, a common law adversarial system has resulted in a confusing patchwork of judicial decisions on antitrust that offer poor guidance for market participants about what constitutes a potentially unlawful, unfair method of competition. Another recent appointment with a populist view of antitrust is Tim Wu, a prominent academic and advocate for heightened antitrust enforcement. Mr. Wu has authored books including The Curse of Bigness and advocated for an overhaul of U.S. antitrust. He was installed as a composition czar at the White House. Some commentators have raised concerns that these types of appointees will seek to prove their publicly stated hypotheses, including that antitrust has failed, rather than engage in a case-by-case -case analysis of the evidence. We shall see whether these fears are well-founded or not and how these populist views play out over the coming months. But either way, the expectation is the agencies will be very aggressive in their enforcement activity. James, thanks for having us. This is David. And I'll just add that I agree with Alex's analysis completely. And two additional points. First, the delay in naming permanent leadership to the DOJ is unusual. Going all the way back to the Clinton administration, April is the latest we have had to wait for the president to nominate an AAG for antitrust in his first term. In the Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush administrations, there were nominees in February or March. We are now, of course, more than halfway through June. 
I'll also note that during presidential transitions, there is an asymmetry between the FTC and DOJ because the FTC immediately has a political acting chair, even if not a permanent one, while the DOJ is run by a career official. Having a permanent chair, likely in a con at the FTC, while still having a career official as the acting AAG at the Department of Justice will continue and maybe intensify that asymmetry. Second, I'll note that one area where leadership remains the same is in criminal enforcement. When there is a full complement of political appointees, the antitrust division is led by a Senate-confirmed assistant attorney general and a handful of deputy assistant attorney generals. While most of these deputy AAGs are political appointees, the deputy in charge of criminal enforcement is traditionally a career position, and that remains true. Day-to-day leadership for criminal enforcement remains unchanged from the previous administration and will likely continue through the appointment of political leaders. Well, thanks, Alex and David. Very interesting, especially in comparing the appointment practices of this administration to the past ones. But does the relatively slow pace of appointments here mean that the antitrust agencies haven't been active so far in the Biden administration? No, no, quite the opposite. The agencies have been very active, and we expect them to become even more so once all permanent political leaders are fully in place. One of the main reasons for the current activity is that the agencies are under statutory deadlines for merger reviews and have remained very busy, largely because of the high volume of deal flow that started late last year as business activity began to rebound after the initial COVID shutdown. Both agencies have reported merger challenges recently that either have resulted in abandoned transactions or in settlements. In addition, the agencies have been very focused on pursuing mergers that involve technology platforms, life sciences innovation, nascent competition, and also have scrutinized vertical issues at a higher rate than in the past and have moved to block some of those deals. So for example, the FTC recently sued Illumina, a provider of gene sequencing technology for its proposed acquisition of Grail, a relatively small startup that is at the forefront of new multi-cancer early detection or MCED liquid biopsy tests. These tests rely on gene sequencing technology to work. The FTC claims that Illumina is one of the only providers of this technology, and as a result, the acquisition of Grail will give it the incentive and ability to harm Grail's competitors and slow innovation by raising prices or otherwise foreclosing or delaying access to its gene sequencing platform. This case is currently in administrative litigation at the FTC and under review in Europe. The focus on vertical mergers and innovation competition is a continuation of a focus by the last administration on these areas. Based on publicly available information, it appears that the agencies also have continued forward with civil conduct investigations and litigation in the tech sector that was begun under the Trump administration. Again, however, we would expect that acting and career leadership would likely wait for incoming political leadership before making any major new civil conduct enforcement announcements. I'll just add that the same applies on criminal enforcement activity. Since the inauguration, DOJ has continued to announce criminal prosecutions and resolutions. Several of these pertain to procurement-related criminal activity, which, as Lisa Phelan noted in December, was a major focus of the last administration. With the increase in government spending, I think we can expect that priority to remain. There have also been several indictments related to alleged antitrust violations in labor markets, including allegations of wage fixing. Labor-related criminal antitrust prosecutions is a hot area. 
At the tail end of the Obama administration, the antitrust division announced that it would treat naked wage fixing or no poach agreements as per se illegal and proceed criminally against such agreements going forward. Lisa Phelan noted in December that despite a lot of talk about this area, no cases had been brought. In early January, however, before the inauguration, the first company was indicted. And since then, other indictments have come down. These present some novel issues and will be worth paying attention to going forward. So that's the enforcement aspect of the early Biden administration. Alex, have we seen any movement on the policy front? Yes, we have, James. The FTC and DOJ, for example, jointly paused early termination, forcing all HSR reportable transactions to wait at least 30 days prior to closing including non-controversial routine filings for exercises of executive options. The career acting AAG at DOJ announced that DOJ is likely changing its stance on enforcement and advocacy policy related to issues at the intersection of antitrust and IP. This was a surprising move since it carries with it significant policy implications, follows a successful amicus and advocacy campaign under the last administration, and led to a number of licensing settlements among technology companies. This was a surprising move since it carries with it significant policy implications, follows a successful amicus and advocacy campaign under the last administration that led to significant court decisions and licensing settlements among technology companies. The important takeaway is that it has left many stakeholders at a loss as to which policies they can follow safely at this point. At the FTC, the former acting chairwoman, Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter, made statements over the last few months that the FTC is going to study heightened enforcement in the pharmaceutical space and likely move forward with substantive competition rules, which would be a first in decades and has caused controversy with critics claiming that the agency may not have solid legal or constitutional footing to implement competition rules. Given that Chairwoman Khan has publicly supported rulemaking and aggressive enforcement, we would expect to see a push at the commission to realize these proposals now that a Democratic majority is in place, at least until Commissioner Chopra is confirmed to lead the CFPB. I'll add that I think we can expect to continue to see coordination with foreign enforcers. Traditionally, much of this occurs at the staff level, and the absence of political leadership up until now likely hasn't affected that. One vivid example is Illumina Grail, which Alex previously mentioned. The FTC initially sought a preliminary injunction in federal court, but dismissed its federal complaint without prejudice because an ongoing European Commission review prevents the parties from closing allowing the FTC to continue to pursue its case in administrative litigation before an FTC administrative law judge. International coordination can give the interest agencies an advantage on both timing and process. In the same vein, I expect we will continue to see close coordination between the agencies and state attorneys general. While there were some high-profile clashes between the states and the DOJ in recent years, both federal agencies worked closely with state AGs in areas of mutual interest during the past administration. As Alex noted, installing Lena Khan as FTC chair signals a populist move, and I think it's fair to characterize many states as having a populist bent. I would expect to continue to see close coordination with the state AGs. So that's the first several months of the Biden administration, some interesting developments on the enforcement front and the policy front. What can we expect going forward from today? 
Well, James, based on the public statements of appointees like Chairwoman Khan or Tim Wu at the White House, we should expect even more intensive scrutiny of deals and single firm conduct that involve technology, including digital platforms, nascent competition, and innovation issues in particular. Other areas that the agencies have signaled are of interest include life sciences and deals that implicate consumer data and privacy. Finance and financial technology also have been identified as areas of interest at the agencies. We should also expect to encounter theories of harm that have historically not been part of the antitrust analysis in the U.S., for example, the potential impact of a merger on employment. The work of the agencies, and in particular the FTC, since we now have a better sense of leadership there, is also likely to be animated at least in part by the populist view that antitrust enforcement up to this point has been too lax, particularly as it relates to enforcement against large technology companies. And in a technical sense, it has not kept up with the analytical tools and enforcement techniques necessary to allow the agencies to police these dynamic technology markets. This view posits that the federal agencies for years have allowed through deals by which incumbents have purchased nascent competitors and thereby slowed innovation or shut down future rivals. The FTC is already conducting a study of companies' non-reportable acquisitions, the results of which may further fuel changes to its merger enforcement policy. As a result, we expect to see the agencies explore new empirical analyses and techniques that measure things like impact on consumer privacy or data ownership, as well as other less traditional theories of harm. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, a deal's potential impact on employment. Already, we are seeing deals that in the past would not have drawn scrutiny face significant delays and risks. We expect the environment to get more challenging. As a practical matter, the agencies are likely to use the merger review process more frequently to expand the scope of materials requested, including involuntary requests and second requests to parties, as well as civil investigative demands to third parties. We anticipate they will use their investigative power more aggressively to address new potential theories of harm, extend out review periods as much as possible to give the agency staff more time to gather and read documents, conduct interviews and depositions, and pull and analyze an increasing volume of company and market data to feed economic models assessing the deal's potential impact on markets. We can also expect that the agencies will be less inclined to modify or limit the scope of requests until they are able to test and refine some of the new theories of harm that are likely to appear during this administration. I think we can also expect the agencies and the state AGs to continue to focus on big tech. State AGs have been very active on this front, both bringing suits in parallel with the federal agencies and bringing additional suits. Just to briefly sum up the activity here, first, there's the DOJ suit against Google, which a bipartisan coalition of 14 states joined. Second, there is a Colorado-Nebraska-led coalition of 38 states, which adopted the DOJ allegations against Google in whole and added some additional ones. Third, there's a Texas-led coalition of 15 states, which Louisiana as a 16th state seeking to add which sued Google related to advertising technology. Fourth and fifth, there's an FTC lawsuit against Facebook, which was filed the same day that a New York-led coalition of 48 states filed a substantively similar lawsuit against Facebook. States tend to travel in groups and sue under federal law, but in just the past month, we've seen two instances of states or equivalent acting solo and under state law. In late May, the D.C. Attorney General sued Amazon under D.C. antitrust law, and just the other week, the Ohio Attorney General sued Google under Ohio law 
seeking to have Google declared a public utility and a common carrier. David, you mentioned earlier international cooperation. And over the past few years, we've seen increased collaboration between DOJ antitrust and non-US enforcement agencies such as CADE, the European Commission, and the KFTC, among others. Under the Biden administration, what can we expect in terms of DOJ's appetite to bring more international cases and its willingness to work with global antitrust regulators? Well, thanks, James. I think we will continue to see extensive cross-border collaboration. The last administration was aggressive in organizing a multilateral agreement on procedures that was ultimately widely adopted under the framework for competition agency procedures. That multilateralism at the political level was echoed at the staff level on specific cases. On cases that had an international dimension, close cooperation at the staff level was common. In practice, this means regular calls between staff sharing and discussing facts and theories. It also allows for a better understanding of process and timing. And as we are seeing now with Illumina Grail, that can give the U.S. agencies a procedural advantage if another jurisdiction's process effectively prevents merging parties from closing. In addition to work with the CADE, the EC, the KFTC, There was also close cooperation with the UK's new competition regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, and the ACCC in Australia, and the JFTC in Japan. And I would expect that cooperation to continue under the Biden administration. Following up on another area that you mentioned earlier, David, let's turn briefly back to criminal enforcement. Late last year, President Trump signed a criminal antitrust whistleblower law into effect. What role will that play in cases pursued under the new administration? Well, that's right, James. In December, the president signed the Criminal Antitrust Anti-Retaliation Act in the law, which prohibits employers from retaliating against individuals who report criminal antitrust violations. On an earlier Mo forecast, in fact, I think the first, Lisa Phelan noted that there was a decline in criminal prosecutions. And I think this Whistleblower Protection Act can best be understood as part of a constellation of actions taken by the federal government to increase the discovery and prosecution of criminal antitrust violations. Another example is the creation of the Procurement Collusion Strike Force, which is a partnership between the Antitrust Division and U.S. Attorney's Offices and Inspectors General focused on identifying criminal antitrust conspiracies that defraud the government. Another is the reauthorization and permanent enactment of the Antitrust Criminal Penalty Enforcement and Reform Act, commonly known as ACPERA, which creates incentives for companies to self-report and cooperate both with the DOJ in criminal investigations and plaintiffs in follow-on civil litigation. Another is the new Corporate Compliance Program, which for the first time gives companies credit for compliance programs even if there is an antitrust violation. Previously, the antitrust division had taken the position that an antitrust violation meant ipso facto that there was no effective compliance program in place. Now companies can get credit even if a truly rogue employee breaks the law. Antitrust in general, and criminal antitrust in particular, tends to have a long, multi-year time horizon. A lot of time and effort is required behind the scenes before the public indictments or guilty pleas emerge into public view. 
Only time will tell, but I expect that all of these will play a role in Biden administration criminal enforcement actions. And I expect we will see an uptick as they reap what the previous administration has done. So we see in some areas there's likely to be a continuation of policies and programs that started under the Trump administration. In other ways, probably more aggressive and novel theories of enforcement and policies as well. Taking all this landscape together, what can companies do to prepare for antitrust enforcement in the Biden administration? On deals, we would recommend bringing antitrust counsel into the deal process earlier to help assess risk and strategize. Parties and their counsel should be proactive about thinking through the implications of engaging with the federal agencies as they operate under a new, more aggressive philosophy, including in ways both new and old. So, for example, in addition to the traditional admonitions that would apply to everyone evaluating a deal, if the deal touches on issues or industries known to be of particular interest to the agencies today, you should undertake a careful inventory of synergies and pro-competitive benefits that you anticipate will arise from the deal. And of course, you should understand all your company and employee documents in anticipation of a broader agency review that might be common in the past. You should also build into your deal timeline a greater possibility of a longer investigation with potentially novel theories of harm, but spend more time at the outset to help minimize that timing risk. So for instance, try to anticipate and address any likely agency issues up front as much as possible. Have your outside lawyers evaluate and analyze both traditional and less traditional theories, like the potential impact of your deal on employment, ownership of consumer data, privacy, or nascent competition. Have them think creatively about remedies that might still protect deal value for you and also get the deal done quickly. If your counsel anticipates a high likelihood of a second request, Consider whether entering a timing agreement makes the most sense for your deal or if moving to substantially comply is a better approach because it may allow for a faster close. And if you choose to focus on substantial compliance, consider upfront how and when to signal that to the agency. I'll add that companies should pay attention to the prospect of state attorney general action, not just following along with federal action, but acting independently. There's been an assumption in the past that states will follow the federal enforcers so that if you can resolve your problem at the federal level, then you'll resolve it with the states. I don't think that's reliable anymore. It may be true, but it may not. And you need to pay close attention to your state-specific risk. Also, for matters that cut across jurisdictions, make sure you are well-coordinated. You can't say one thing to one enforcer and contradict that with another. Staff are likely talking to each other. Finally, and just to reiterate and reinforce a point that Lisa made on no forecast in December, pay close attention to antitrust risk stemming from human resources. Criminal wage fixing and no poach cases have arrived and represent an area of risk outside traditional antitrust compliance programs. It's not just your salespeople you need to worry about. Related to that point, we are seeing criminal cases come out of evidence uncovered during merger reviews. There is a risk there on both the more traditional criminal antitrust front and the labor antitrust front. Needless to say, having a criminal antitrust investigation come out of a merger review is a nightmare. It can kill the deal and expose officers and employees to criminal liability. If you're contemplating a deal, it's worth asking whether you need to do due diligence on that front as well. 
Very practical and helpful advice. Thanks to both of you, Alex and David. And with that, this brings us to the end of part two of our Mo Forecast episode on antitrust expectations for the Biden administration. Once again, I'm your host, James Kukios, speaking with Alex Aculiar and David Shaw. If you liked today's episode, please visit the MoFo website and join us for additional installments of the Mo Forecast series, covering predictions for enforcement and policy trends in other areas of the law. Thanks for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.